When was the last time that I or you or someone listening to this sort of thought, you know what I need to deal with this thing that I'm facing at work right now? Like, I need to be a little bit more like my granddad. Because the way he... Or, you know, some someone even further back in the past. No, it's always, I'm a lifelong learner. I don't look back. I look forward. What does the current science say? What's the, what's the most recent information? Well, hello and welcome again to, oh, why are we talking about rabbits? That's this show where we try to figure out how to talk about heavy things lightly. Rabbits are light things. They're things that reproduce. Today, we talk to Andrew Martin about the religious impulse in the American workplace, among other things. Can't wait. This guy knows his stuff. Welcome to Watar. How you doing, Andrew? What's up? And if I were any better, I might be twins, brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Just drinking some tea, hanging out with you. <laughs> I love it. Uh, thanks for coming on. You and I have been chatting over the course of our lives together since I moved up here yep. off and on. You're a pro. You're in the professional environment. Some people, including my wife, think maybe I'm less than a pro. Sometimes I run a nonprofit, but it's pro stuff on some level. Um, today, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the world we know is white collar yeah. and the religious impulse and other stuff, because uh, you really offer a lot to our Watar people. First of all, how are you? Where are you? You don't have to tell us all about your individual, particular professional lives, because I know that this is a public sphere, but what do you do, man? Yeah, so um, I live very close to you, actually. I'm in Simpsonville, South Carolina, um, and I re really have lived here most of my life. I would say I'm modestly well-traveled. But I'm a upstate of the South Carolina boy. I mean, this is where I was mm -hmm. born and born and raised. Um, my vocation, uh, somehow I stumbled into this 20 years ago, but I am in the corporate training space, which yeah. is usually some sort of subset of, of the HR organization, right? Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I'm not one of those guys who's had 40 jobs in 20 years. I've really worked for two large organizations in the Fortune 500 space, but I'm also pretty well networked through training and learning and leadership development uh, with a lot of other organizations. And I, I'm engaged in sort of executive coaching, um, individual development plans, basically like most of your listeners who have a job that's not at like a small business, but is mm -hmm. for some sort of big corporation. I do what like when they have to go through training, that's me. <laughs> so, yeah. so you're using a certain language. It's curated by your company to bring people into a culture. Could, is that correct on some level? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of staggering. Once you get into this space and you start really listening, every company is borderline obsessed and, John, you you know me. You know I tend towards hyperbole. I've promised myself in this conversation. <laughs> I'm I'm really going to try to I'm going to try to steer away from it. Uh, so I'm when I say obsessed, I mean obsessed. Like there are people in a room spending hours, weeks, months trying to figure out like what's our what's our company culture? Oh, what what are what are our um 
what are our values? Um, who, who are we? Who are the people who work here? This is, this is something that these days, in my experience, in my network of, of um, people in the same field as me, everyone is talking about, everyone is trying to figure out. And I, I think it's fascinating. Why? Why, why, why do people even care? You know? You know our work at First Things, and you know this yeah. pod is in part to bring on, you know, interested parties to talk about what we do, and who knows where it goes. There's definitely a thought every time I hit play or record that I want to say the right things. So I, I think this is a human impulse, and when we do it in a big, large scale, I think people like me somehow it's less authentic or something but maybe just as religious. In other words, I believe strongly I should say the right things because I want to be the right things and do the right things. Is your big company circa 2021, are they interested in doing the right things? Or are they trying to sell or is it the same? There's, <laughs> there's a lot in this question. There are conflicting desires. Every company wants to grow. Every company wants to um uh, you, you know, to make money, and I would say it's not purely for selfish or mercenary reasons. You know, organizations, I think healthy organizations understand that if they're profitable, if they do well, they can then do well by their people. Right, right. So, so there's a there's a piece of that that's okay. There's a piece of it that kind of gets away from itself, and right alongside that, there is the awareness that um, that we. We have to, I, I'm, I'm searching for the words here. Uh, um, we are responsible at some level um, to leave the world a better place. Huh. Um, now, I, I would say the two organizations that I've worked for, and I'm going to be very careful not to name them, but the two organizations that I've worked for have gone about doing that in dramatically different ways. And, I but, think. but in both cases, it's to, be, to leave the world a better space. Whatever that means to them. Sure. Now, is that the religious impulse that maybe we're going to talk? Is that religious? So I'm going to give a disclaimer up front and say all of my experience is purely, I would call it anecdotal and subjective. This is me interpreting the world as I've experienced it. Okay. Um, so I don't have a degree in this. I work with a lot of people who have degrees in this. I don't have a degree in this. So we, you'll hear a lot about you know certain models from the last 60, 70 years. One of them that you'll, you'll hear referenced all the time is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, where we're talking about the religious impulse, but let's kind of scale that back a little bit and talk about more basic impulses, right? Mm -hmm. One of, if you found yourself sort of stranded on a desert island, there are things that you would take care of first, um, food, shelter, clothing. Like, how do we protect ourselves from the elements? How do we make sure we get the calories that we need? Um, beyond that, uh, there are, and I'll, I'll miss some of these, but there's the, the safety need, the social need. And as, as you ascend up this pyramid, you kind of move towards the idea of um, self-actualization. Mm -hmm. Maslow even <laughs> revised his theory later in his life to include the notion of transcendence. And organizations are using this model to sort of talk about and explore how do we make sure that our people are fulfilled, happy, uh, that they're engaged in 
in meaningful work uh, that they're giving beyond what's the bare minimum that's required of them. But like we're getting that what they call volitional effort, right? The they choose to sort of go the extra mile. And I, I you're asking the question about the religious impulse. I think that organizations are accidentally recognizing the religious impulse by allowing space. And I don't, I don't actually agree with all of Maslow's theories and his models, but this notion of beyond self-actualization mm-hmm. transcendence, yeah, which is yeah. doing good for the other, not just for yourself, that there's something larger outside of you. Um, and I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable that organizations would begin to ask these kinds of questions and that they would have to acknowledge these kinds of needs within people. Are they doing Edward Bernays, uh, maybe the first American marketeer, uh, turn of the century. He was a cousin of Freud. I recommend a show called century of self to learn more about him. He, he gets into this. Well, he doesn't get into it. He, he, he invents the notion that a company needs to speak to that self-actualization that that is actually the the goal of of any good company is to get people to buy things because it is them that they are forming not because they need a knife to cut meat they have to mm-hmm. become a part of the knife and i think that's what what we're here to talk about this religious impulse so bernays he's really open about it he says this is a psychological thing that we need to master so that our customers unknowingly do what we want. And he wouldn't call it religious because he was atheistic, but he would say that is our role when we get into HR, when we get into running businesses at the highest levels is know the people in a way they don't know themselves so that we can manipulate them. That's a trip, right? Do you see it that? is a trip? Is that out sure. there? Of course. But I, like that brings up a question that I have for you. Sure. Uh, so in first things, my understanding is that no small number of people have sort of jumped on board and followed you guys through what you're doing because the organizations that they worked for weren't scratching that itch. So what's going on there? <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, they get on board to be self-actualized and then sent some some crazy neighborhood. And then you're right. You're right. It It, it is presumptuous to think that maybe you can get outside of that and just be a product person. Maybe that is what all organisms do, including the organism, the organization of a, that's right. Of a, of a five, I mean, of a fortune 500 company even. So, so, so I like that. So you're not demonizing that process, but you're seeing it. You see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to be really careful to not demonize it because um, the people that I work with, uh, have as, as big a hearts as I've ever seen. Right. Um, and I'm thinking of very specific people right now who I admire and in many ways would like to be like there, there is a sort of, a there's just a, a kind of a, a dead end that it all seems to run into yeah. because, well, you could possibly point to a lot of reasons, but one of the big problems that I see is this tendency to feel like we have to create something from scratch. Um, there, rather than having the wealth of uh, an ancient culture or a deep tradition, 
to to sort of extend into new areas of work people are they don't have any any tradition you know uh, people are people are feeling like they have to make up what matters um most every single time a new company is formed you know imagine people sitting around in a room going like what are our values going to be you know if you have a, an incredibly old tradition, hundreds, thousands of years, you don't have to ask that question. You know, if, for example, for example, in, in the world of Christianity, which I can speak to, cause I have the most experience with it, that question would never get asked. The, the virtues are, are known. They're named the, like the seven virtues and the seven deadly sins. They're all out there. Yeah. Everybody's kind of reading from the same music. Nothing's changed in the last 2000 years. It's just all there. Whereas if you're, you know, if you're creating a new uh, organization that produces some particular widget or, you know, a new, a new way to deliver goods to people remotely or whatever the business is, you know, like to sit around in a room and go, what matters to us? Who are we? What values do we uniquely hold? That, gotcha, that endeavor, brilliant. yeah, that, but that, that endeavor, I mean, think about the weight and the pressure that that puts on every <laughs> single soul to like creek. There's a religious, I, I believe there's a religious impulse happening in that moment when people are asking that question. There is something that we have to organize around. And by the way, I, people, my whole childhood, my whole teenage life, even through college, would, would talk about how weary they were getting of organized religion. I'm in my early 40s. I'm at the point in my life where I just, all my cards on the table, I have a profound love for organized religion. Uh, I love Kool-Aid. I drink that stuff by the barrel. Get, like, serve me all the Kool-Aid you want. I, I'm, I do not believe that I individually or even me and my friends around me have the wherewithal to sort of create the structures of meaning that centuries of humans worked through together. And that's what's interesting about organizations today is they recognize the need for values, morality, meaning, all of these things in the work that they do. But there's a sense in which it seems like everybody's starting from scratch. I could be wrong about that. I uh, I would I would love to hear people's comments about it. But yeah, it seems as though people are starting from square one again and again and again and again and again. Wow. What that's such good insight. And as someone who started from scratch in my head anyway, we did have those conversations, Ryan and I, a co-founder, and then the guys who came on after we did, we sat around and like whiteboarded it. <laughs> you know, what we ended up, we kept doing really insightful. What you said, Andrew, we kept saying, well, why don't we just do what Methodius, Cyril and Methodius did. Yeah. That's and then right. We were like, yeah, that's it. And then we'd read more about them and then just try to copy them. And I'll be honest though. I feel like I was losing some of my autonomy as an American thinker. Like I did feel like I was giving something away for a while, but then the embrace ended up being the, the answer. This is a real struggle Yeah. to, to know the self fully, to acknowledge the self fully while at the same time, sort of giving the self over to something higher and larger. Um, I haven't found my way through all of that. Do, do businesses do as as this guy who knows the inside? Do businesses do this? Are 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 they hmm. aware? Maybe some do. Hmm. 
It's interesting. When you first asked me that question, I don't think I'm answering the question that you asked. When you first asked me that question, you know what I saw? I saw like, you know, in the deep South, I know you have listeners all over the world. Yeah, so maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is going to land with some people and not with others, but in the deep South, everywhere you go, you'll see organizations that either lean hard into patriotism or religion Yeah, in okay. order to kind of attract uh, or, or at least broadcast a particular understanding of who they are as a company. So you see the pest control truck with the American flag and the Christian fish. I've and you, you know what they're saying and you yeah. know who they're gunning for. That's, right. um, that's not the question that you asked, but that was the image that came into mind when you, when you said that. And on this show, I know you listen, so you, I'm really thankful too, but the lig is the key word there, the ligament, the thing that holds your worldview together, whether or not you are religious, I think you're going to act religious. I, it, you may say to yourself, I'm not, but I would argue the history of humankind tells us you will act as if you have a religion. So Absolutely. If, that's even, yeah, if that's even a little true, then yeah. are there certain times types of ligs maybe the one we share the Orthodox Christian one, or maybe not that are meant to be private. So I wonder if there's certain, like w would a Muslim be less inclined to put the Quran on the side of his, his pest control truck or to put the uh, Crescent yeah. moon because I'm not doing that. That's, that's like Holy stuff. I'm not putting that on the side. Mm. Is that a Protestant thing in this? I think it might be because I'm, I would have to, can, can you fund me a quick trip to Russia so that I can actually do some field research? What I want to know is in Russia, does the pest control truck have like a little St. Andrew's cross on it? So this is really interesting. No. And here's the reason why is everybody kind of knows it already. Like the culture is so intertwined. Russia and, is so intertwined with its orthodoxy. So it'd be kind of like weird. So you're also here on this podcast, you're talking old world, new world, right? Yeah. So I, right. I, it seems as though the old world does not see its religious symbols as something that can be conflated with commerce or yeah. business. They're different things. And yeah. so in, in the States, it actually, you know, the fortune 500 company who on June the 1st is broadcasting their alignment with gay pride month and saying, Happy Pride Month employees, like these are our values. This is important to us. Tolerance, acceptance, inclusion, and all of this is really no different than the, you know, the pest control truck with the Christian fish. Everybody sees their moral stance as something that can be sort of fronted as uh, a, a platform or a proof, you know, of, of why pitch. you should support us. It's a sales pitch. That's it. That's okay. it. Yeah. And, and maybe you don't find that in Ethiopia. Maybe you no. don't see that in Guatemala. No, not, not right now. Now the marketplace is becoming saturated with uh, sort of Western tricks and tools. Mm. And, and it, those tools only work when the mind of the, the, the Easterner, for lack of a better word, the old worlder is able to understand it. And I think that's the role of industrial education right now across the world is to get people in a place where they can understand the marketing tools. Does that make any sense? Like, Well, I was just talking with a friend last night about the seeming, it seems like the role of colleges and universities in the US is not the same as it was 80 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. the, the higher education in the US right now 
seems to be primarily geared towards producing the types of people who will thrive within the Western corporate structures, which, I mean, over the last year, haven't we seen whether it's, and, and by the way, as I talk about these things, I, I'm, I'm not drawing, a, I'm not the guy who's going to draw a line in the sand about what's right, what's wrong, what matters. Yeah. But, but you've seen corporations stepping into the conversation about Black Lives Matter, um, transgender rights, all of the things that I think as a label you could say are more progressive mm-hmm. versus conservative matters, right? And businesses, corporations are stepping in and identifying as, hey, here's where we stand on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think right now in America, like large organizations are the front line of culture shaping and moral policing uh, for wherever it is that we're heading. And is that, would you say that has something to do with the emptying of churches? That metaphorically, right. that which became empty, the churches has been, it is now filling up that which we all participate in the, the businesses or the cor- the corporate world. Is that, is that happening? You think? Well, can I, can I answer your question by reading you an aphorism from Nassim uh, Nicholas Talib, the guy who oh, wrote, yeah. uh, yeah, he has a section in his book, uh, the bed of Procrustes, uh, Procrustes, Procrustes, did I say that the right way? I don't know. I but uh, his Procrustes, but don't Procrustes, yeah, he has a, a chapter uh, on the sacred and the profane. And this simple aphorism uh, just says this People used to wear ordinary clothes on weekdays and formal attire on Sunday. Today it is the exact reverse. It's a very simple observation. There's not much uh-huh. to unpack there, but, it, but it, it is interesting, isn't it? That like, what is the thing that we sort of put ourselves together for and present yeah, ourselves well cool. for mm-hmm. that, that generally tends to show what we revere. And in most of corporate America, no, no one would dare show up at their office the way that they show up at their, you know, mega church on Sunday morning. They, they, they wouldn't even think about it. <laughs> that is irony. Right. That's irony. Um, and it's it's funny. I I'm already I've forgotten the question that you asked that triggered that thought. I don't but, know if but I that's, can remember it. <laughs> yeah, but that but that's that's I mean, did one place empty the traditional? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Did another place fill up? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, I think so. I think I think so too. And then of course the question is is did the search for meaning, which is always implied when you walk into a church or a mosque or a sacred place. Did the search for meaning also show up in the workplace because human beings must search for meaning? Yeah. And that happened too, I wonder. The search, John, the search for meaning shows up everywhere. It's to me more obvious that it would show up in the workplace yeah. than um, somewhere that it's shown up. That's really, really interesting. Um, and I think about the famous observation by Zizek about Tom's shoes organization, Mm -hmm. like morality and meaning is so important to us that it has wormed its way into our commerce and our, our consumer acts that we 
we are so wired for meaning that we feel like if we buy something for ourselves, we have to offset that with something meaningful. So Tom's shoes, right? Buy a pair and a pair goes to someone like people. That was a moral choice. Mm -hmm. Trust me. Nobody was buying Tom's shoes purely for the fashion because those things look as, as, as outdated as, you know, I don't know. Crocs actually Crocs are back in. That's not a great example. Efficient. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Right. I mean, that's the, that's the whole foods thing. So if you, if you look at whole foods and Tom's and you look at all of these places and you don't see a religious impulse, I, I, you know, maybe we got to go back to square one and talk about what religion really is. I don't know. So let, unpack this a little bit with me because you can do the history um, and then you can maybe apply it to your life in, in the corporate world. But there may have been a fool's errand that all of the Western world, you know, Europe mostly went on during the enlightenment, which was the, and the fool's errand was is, Hey, look, we can, we've uncovered spaces where God is less relevant and then they sold that that errand, and I definitely bought it growing up, which is the notion that some places are secular and some places aren't. Some places are where God's stuff happens and some places are where God's stuff doesn't. And maybe the postmodern experience, even in the corporate world now, is, is that was always not true. That was always not mm. true, and now we're actually going to say it's not true, and we're going to turn what was our church into our business, and we're going to do mm. meaningful stuff. No? I, I don't know. I'm. I, I don't know if I'm missing a, a presupposition to what you're saying. Are, are you saying that all places are sacred? Where a human being made in God's image is 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 meandering about, it does feel like there must be something sacred in that space. It's interesting because in the Hebrew faith, uh, God was actually located in a very specific place. He was in the temple. Um. In the New Testament, uh, Christ, as a teacher, turns this on its head and, um, you know, indicates that the the body is the dwelling place of God, right? That the, the body temple. is the temple. Um, not, not necessarily canceling, though, the notion that there is a, a building, a, 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 a sacred building. I don't... I, yeah, I get I get a little I get a little peeved when people want to sort of decentralize the church and say, ah, there the church isn't a place. The church is the people. And I want to go, oh, I well, it's a place. That. It's a place. Yeah. It's definitely a place. Yeah, it's definitely a place. And there's definitely something happening there that's not happening at your house on Yeah, and you morning. you would with you know, you you definitely go you go to Carolina Ale House on Sundays during, you know, football November to watch football, right? you don't do that at church. There's a, there's a place where you do some things. There's so, you know, I, I don't know that people suddenly called work the place where they, they go to meet God. I, I think they just found that um, the work, the kind of work, and maybe this is an industrial revolution thing, yeah, the kind of work that people were found themselves doing that the overwhelming majority of people found themselves doing was so bereft of meaning there you go. Uh, that, you know, over decades, uh, really smart people kind of started to figure out that, hey, you know, we've got to we've got to find a way to inject some meaning back into this. There's a lot of people writing about this. There's a guy named Daniel Pink who wrote a book, Drive, about ten years ago, and he kind of points to three things that he says 
are the keys to motivating somebody in the workforce. Autonomy, purpose, and mastery. Autonomy, the ability to make decisions for yourself, to not necessarily have an overlord. Um, purpose, purpose, purpose. The ability to, be, to know uh, that you're working for something larger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And then mastery, the opportunity to kind of level up. Um, which which introduces a whole nother avenue to this conversation that that I don't I don't know if we have time for but but you talking about Daniel Pink there is helpful because I think Marx was onto it with the concept of alienation his point was is a type of work being done in the industrial west was destroying he wouldn't call souls but was destroying the relationship between the product and the person mm. there was no telos in the product there was no purpose mm. and so what what happened was, as he said, that kind of work will lead man to rebel. Well, it'll first make man into a, a monster and then it'll lead him to rebel. And, and so what might have happened, and I like the way you just described it, is, is it's not so much that people wanted to move church into the business world. What they were really trying to do was find meaning because of the alienation that had happened over the last two centuries, because of the type of work that, that we created for ourselves out of the enlightenment, which was this industrial version of, of living, you know, at the workplace. Huh. Possible. Well, possible. I want to give your, your listeners something to think about here. Ask yourself if you're within the sound of my voice, when was the last time that you heard someone within your, uh, workspace refer to themselves as a lifelong learner. Oh Lord. You, you hear, this is such a great phrase, like uh, such a common phrase, not great phrase, such a common phrase It's actually people will in their bios on LinkedIn. This is one of the leading ways that people describe themselves today. I'm a lifelong learner. They say it with pride. What's interesting about this notion of being a lifelong learner. Well, there are layers to it. For one thing, um, it sort of introduces the idea that the truth or goodness or whatever is something that you'll never hmm. really attain to, which, which, is a, which is a notion that's worth talking about. Can you attain to it? Is it, is it something that you can achieve? But, but beyond that, I think it actually positions this never-ending revolution. This has come up on your podcast before when you talk about American history, but like... Um, whether it's Protestantism in the West or the American experiment, this never-ending revolution that's happening. Right. When people value the notion of being a lifelong learner, they make themselves unwitting subjects to the never-ending whims of science, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of, of information. Of information, of whatever it is that we discover. And I, I, I want to be clear, like, I hope that it doesn't come across as though I'm poking fun at that. I, I just think that's something to be fairly worried about. Um, like, when was the last time that I or you or someone listening to this sort of thought, you know what I need to deal with this thing that I'm facing at work right now? Like I need to be a little bit more like my granddad because the way he, or, you know, some, someone even further back in the past. No, it's always, I'm a lifelong learner. 
I don't look back. I look forward. What does the current science say? What's the, what's the most recent information? Yeah, I know that the most recent information is going to be different two years from now. That's part of how science works. That's okay. But, but we're, we're, we're underneath this never-ending, grinding, revolving wheel. Um, I, I, I have to wonder what Marx would have thought of that. I think he would say you're describing exactly the problem with modernity because see one thing about Marx is, is he knew modernity. People throw him under the bus because he, I don't know, a lot of his thinking leads to really bad sy- systems. But his foundational observations weren't wrong. No, I think they're very right. Now the next question is what do you do? So right. I think the system that, that he creates tries to, This is where I think he's very religious. And I think all of this modern stuff going on in society right now, modern stuff here being all of the constant changing of the guard toward a more perfect understanding of race, a more perfect understanding of gender. All of this stuff is coming out of the notion is that the only way to be true is to learn more stuff. Like you're saying, just like the only way to be a true human is to get more information into your brain. And I, I see the old world differently, and I want to see if this shows up for you in the corporate world. The old world, and I'm not just talking about Christianity, they basically understood that there were probably five strains of of information, five sort of touchstones, that if you understood those, they decoded all the other pieces of information that you might ever want to take into your brain. Hmm. In other words, you didn't have to know all 450 million pieces. You only had to know the five. Hmm. And once you got the five, then you could make sense of the 450 million. And I just feel like we're always searching for the 450 million. Like we're always in this mad rush to acquire more information when we really only know yeah. five bits. Or yeah, maybe there are a lot the, of the tradition would, the other tradition would say we need three bits, you know, the Trinity or whatever. But hmm. are, are, are your, experiences in the workplace are, is this it? Just if we have more information, we can, we can sell a better product. Is that what's happening? Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, there's, there's, there's stuff in the water right now about simplifying, about scaling back. You know, there are big uh, thinkers in the, learning and talent development and corporate human improvement project space who are saying, we don't need more. What we need is less. Um, the, the problem is less isn't ever less if it's dynamic, if it's not static, mm-hmm. like it, you know, if there, if there's not a sort of a core central three or five tenants or principles, whatever they are that are timeless, if it's, if, if even if people are acknowledging, even if people are acknowledging, man, it would be really helpful if we could just sort of call everything down to a few basic principles, which I think is what's happening every time someone tries to define their values, right? Let's just call it down to what really, really matters. Well, nobody 15 years ago, nobody in the corporate space was using the word inclusion in what matters. But because of the science and everything today, the number one of the number one leading things I'll, I'll, I'll list them for you. Uh, Harvard Business Review recently put out this kind of six part series of collections of their articles that were about being human at work. And, and each book was named after a virtue. One of them was named empathy. One of them was named influence and persuasion. 
then you get into some of these newer ones like inclusion, uh, um, uh, resilience is a big one right now. Authenticity, whoa, authenticity. Like nothing matters more than being authentic, authentic leadership. Imitation, John, is out the window. The virtue, the virtue of imitation, gone. Authenticity, self exploration. This is the new a virtue of imitation. Elaborate. That's really interesting. And I have a feeling I get it, but what are you saying there? Well, I, I mean, imitation is, is one of uh, the greatest virtues. I, I think, you know, children walking around in their parents' shoes. And again, I can't help but be orthodox, but you know, like little five-year-olds walking around swinging a sake of a fake sensor. Um, you know, this is, we, we, we learn both folly and virtue by way of imitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, imitation is, it's like anything, it's not right or wrong. It's a two-sided sword. You can imitate something bad and you become something awful. You can imitate something good and you become something great or, you know, even better than what it is that you're imitating. Um, but, but there's no, there's no discussion of imitation. It's all authenticity. And w- what I'm saying is this, you that. asked the question about, you know, just a few core principles. I think people are constantly trying to find their way back to that, but n- maybe nobody 15 years from now is talking about inclusion or authenticity mm-hmm. because what's going to happen? What's been happening for a few centuries? The next big thing is going to show up as being more important. Empathy's off the table this decade. Next table, next decade, it's going to be the number one thing. So, does the corporate demand become awareness of trend? Is that mm-hmm. what must happen at the highest levels? Is trend awareness? And value acquisition is less important than trend awareness. Does that sound right to you in the business place? Sure. It colors. Trend awareness is coloring, um, you know, human development, individual development plans, leadership development, career succession, all of that kind of stuff, the kind of people that you hire. I think it's also coloring marketing, right? Like think about the Super Bowl commercials this last year. What what were they like? Well, yeah. Did you pick up on it? Yeah, well weren't they speaking the language of the social justice? It's all, it's yeah, it's, it's all the latest. That's the trend. This is um, what we look for in the people that we hire. This is uh, how we sell our products. Now I can hear people who are profoundly moved and committed to, let's just say progressive values. um, Arguing what, well, if we suddenly discover that we've been doing it wrong for centuries, why wouldn't sure. why wouldn't we want to throw all of that away and embrace the new good? Um, you know, my there's a lot of discussion to be had about that, but my my initial my knee jerk response would just be: given the patterns of the last 30, 40, 50 years, what would give us any confidence that we got it right this time? Well, yeah. Oh, well, and also. What part of our vocabulary allows us to say right? That's not a word that we can easily come to because right implies transcendence, like just deep down. There's, by right, you really, what you mean to say, you don't mean right for right now. You Let's just be honest, the way we use that word is right is tied to something true and something true as per everyone. That That's what everyone's always talking about. That's why the religious impulse is what it is. But so go back for a second. 
if if trend awareness is the key, why? Why be trend aware? I'm just, I don't even know if that's a phrase. I kind of like it though. It, it, is it to sell stuff? Because see, this is where it gets really cynical. This is where my, my communist bone starts to say, yeah, man, capitalism is brutally cynical and yucky. This is where the communist in me, I don't know if there is one. I hope not. But if there is one in me, <laughs> do I? It says, whoa, trend awareness means sales. And that's the only reason that we're aware because it's sure not about truth. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I have anything to say about that. I don't know. I'm just shouting at the wind because I don't know anyone no, I, that exists very long in that in, in that space where everything is simply sales. I don't know anyone that stays very human inside of that space. Well, the <laughs> I have I'm a, about I have only a, about sales. I'm talking about where I go right. to bed at night knowing I did well because I sold. Is is that a way to be healthy? Is it possible? Maybe. Maybe. There's something weird going on here. Good. What's going on? Well, so, okay. Virtue in an organization. That's what we're talking about, right? I, did right. We get off the topic. We did. Uh, maybe, who knows? I don't know. But but the religious <laughs> the the religious impulse that seems to be if if we're even onto something here, the religious impulse that seems to be showing up in corporate America. People who are listening to this and they have these jobs, and it's like the jobs are all talking about wellness. things that seem to be moral and you know spiritual and and about wholeness. Like the the weird thing about that is. It's right back to the same American Protestant thing where we are all our own authorities. Yeah. We're acting as our own authorities. The people hate organized religion and they hate the church. I'm just going to be this guy and say, I, I think a lot of people hate it because they, they don't want to be told what to do. And the fact that there's corruption in almost every institution that has existed throughout the history of humanity gives people an easy out to to want to say you know what like think about all of the bad that has been done by organizations people people aren't ducking out of organizations why because <laughs> they're favorite. getting because they're still getting money and they're still to some degree autonomous you don't like this organization you don't like their values you can ditch and go find one that ultimately aligns with you but at the but at the end of the day, you're still in the driver's seat. You're still the authority. You are the hierarch of your own life, the yeah. arbiter of your own truth, yeah. and and people have ditched and bailed on churches because it seems as though the structures that define those things, at least in the older world, in the older world churches, they're not changing, and there is like the process to become a priest and get to be one of the people who has a say in it is exhausting. So, you know what, I'm just going to move on to the thing that I'm going to go to a company that I like. I'm going to go to a church that I like. I'm going to find somebody who aligns with who I am. And there's no submission. There's no hierarchy. There's no authority. So what would you say to people who say, look, man, I grant you the religious impulse and people, I'll grant you a soul. I don't care. But the people have left the quote, institutionalized religion because mm. the obedience asked for inside of those walls 
is a bad obedience. It's an obedience that people have learned to recognize as bad for them. It's not that they won't be obedient. It's just not to that because Mm -hmm. that has proven to be hypocritical in nature. It's proven not to be salvific inside of those walls. I obey. And when I do, it goes badly for me. And so I left. Yeah. Yeah. And when I hear stuff like that, I take a deep breath, a really deep one. I mean it like all the way down to my belly and I breathe it out and I recognize that I, you, everyone ultimately at some point is, has to be obedient to one thing. I hate to do the memento mori thing here, but like, (laughs) we're all going to, we're all going to die. And if there's anything to this religious impulse thing that we're talking about, it's going to shake out after that's over. Um, Yeah. And you know, if, if, if we're not, if we're not going through it now, we'll go through it after that. If we're right. Yeah. And I I, I don't mean that answer as a cop out. Like I, I actually wouldn't climb up on that hill that you just described and pull out a sword and do much of any fighting. I'm the guy who just goes, okay, time will tell time will tell. And, and mm -hmm, that's humble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And think about how quickly organizations die. You know, the, the, um, Hindu faith, the, uh, uh, like Zen Buddhism, the Muslim faith, the Christian Orthodox uh, and Catholic faith, very, very, very old. All of these other commercial enterprises that are straining to create meaning, uh, they all kick the bucket within 20, 50, 100 years. How old is the oldest organization in the United States of America? Yeah, think about that. I mean, you've got... Uh, what is a couple like really old insurance companies? I, 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 yeah, and sure. There's a couple of it, really it, old banks, but you're talking any, still 200 years. And any one of them could be bought tomorrow by somebody else. Yeah. Um, so just like let time shake these things out. The religious impulse is cropping up everywhere. If it's going south, uh, give it some time. Maybe somewhere on the other side of this life. Give it some time. It'll work out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let me share this. Uh, then we'll, we'll, I think we'll wrap it up because it's been good. It's been really interesting. Hmm. When you put on your nice outfit and go to work, right? Do you think you should be afforded a space where one religious impulse, let's say the religious impulse of the company, wellness or something? Yeah. Where it doesn't do damage to the other religious impulse in you, which is the faith you brought from your home altar or your, yeah. your church. Is there a right to some sort of freedom of impulse? <laughs> do I get to practice it? Yeah. yeah. Does the company, cause this is what's happening now, right now, this is what Google, Google and all the social media has extended into our lives in a way where we expect them not to, um, you know, not to interfere with our own sacred things yet. We want to use their product. Mm. How, how, how do you sort this out? Can we, is it too, is it too big of a question? I mean, should you have a f- the freedom to avoid the company's religious impulse? If that's what they keep doing to you. Oh man. Why do you ask this, this sprawling, At the end. this question? Yeah. This question that you just asked is like an entire podcast, my brother. Well, let's it's, come back to it. Give us, give us, 30 seconds yeah. from your, yeah. we'll come back to yeah. it. I like that. We'll come back. to Well, it, I, why don't I, 
I can imagine that it sounds like I've actually poked at corporate America quite a bit during this conversation. So I would actually like to take your question and end with something that I'm thankful for. Do it. Do it. Um, you know, it, it has been my experience that there is more appreciation for and tolerance of um, my religious leanings and persuasions in the workplace uh, than at in this day and age than at any other time. So again, just going off of my own personal experience, you'll hear a lot of people <laughs> say things like, we're coming to take our Christmas away from us and we can't, you know, we can't practice our faith out of the, uh, you know what? My experience has been the exact opposite that, you know, when Holy Week was happening and Pascha was going on, I worked with people who want nothing to do with not just Christianity, but any form of organized religion who were genuine, genuinely curious about it, asked questions, valued it. Um, you know, there are, I know in certain parts of the country, um, people who work on the front lines of the business that I'm in who, you know, stop the, I will say that it involves large moving vehicles and they can stop their trucks at certain times of the day if they're Muslim and pray. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this is a day of uh, a very strange clash of intolerance and tolerance, and it's all out front. Yeah. And you know the the big corporate giants that you're that you're mentioning, the Apples, the Googles, who have hard stances about certain things. Um, I think right up against that, there's this curious. Uh, there's this humanity and this curiosity that everyone has about each other that's really beautiful and i'm yeah. i'm thankful to be a part of that it's it's not all bad yeah just just one comment on that i think that that postmodern inclination in, in the workplace is actually simply the unraveling of the protestant the protestant inclination mm. where 100 years ago everybody knew the game something like a wasp culture was happening in your business place. It just was, it, it didn't yeah. have to be exactly that, but it was. And now that that has died on various yeah. levels, it's not so much that somebody's, I like what you're saying. It's not so much that somebody is um, offending you or oppressing you at, you know, at, at big company dot Inc. It's more like, who knows what to do now. And so where someone steps up with their new world, you know, new agey kind of talk, it feels oppressive to you, but actually everything's kind of welcome. And I wonder yeah. if that lasts very long. That's, yeah. that's why I like, I, I, I am more optimistic about right now. You'll hear a lot of people in this sort of pod world get really down, but I'm actually, I get what's happening. I, I feel people want to entertain meaning. They want to talk about the religious impulse. Yeah, think about think about your your boy. Uh, sorry, I'm cutting you off. No, think about your boy your boy Uncle Seth, right? Uh, if I if I digest these conversations between you and him adequately, and I would I would you know love to give him his opportunity to respond to this if if he needs to, but it but it seems as though on the one hand he would defend cancel culture, but the reality the reality is. He's on a podcast with you. Separatism has run its course. <laughs> and in funny. spite of the, like, it, I, I'm going to, Seth, hey, buddy, you listening? I love you, man. I listen to every single one of you, and I love your episodes. Um, I'm going to read two aphorisms for you, Seth. Nice. The person you are most afraid to contradict 
is yourself. That's aphorism number one. Aphorism number two, an idea starts to be interesting when you get scared of taking it to its logical conclusion. And I think that while there's a strong desire to defend the sort of religious separatist instinct, what's actually happening in these conversations between the two of you is there is love, there is brotherhood, there is mutual human respect. And I've experienced that in spite of all of the weird religious impulse stuff in all directions that seems to be happening in the corporate workplace today. I've experienced that same kind of humanity among people of differing faiths and worldviews and so on in my own work. And I agree with you. I think it is encouraging. I think yours and Seth's relationship is encouraging. I would love to nud, to, to sort of nuzzle in and be part of that, that bro friendship. I think it's great. It's wonderful. And I think that's a lot of what's happening right now. Well said, good place to end. I won't bring it back to the scary what might come, but maybe that's next time. So you'll come back. I like I like this. Yeah. I think you should come back every now and then and inform us about what it looks like from your side of the aisle of meaning not not so much the old world religious side of which you can speak, but the parts yeah. I can't speak about, which is corporate America. I'd love to hear more, man. As long as I'm in it, we'll talk about it. Super. So, Andrew Martin, thanks for coming. This has been Watar Shenizkagi Marjos to you, Andrew Martin. That means to you the victory. That's often said at the KP table, which is a Georgian word for table or party. Uh, Andrew, you've been to a couple of those. We love having people along. If you're interested in First Things Foundation, Give us a call in the pod notes or give us a, a, a write us and see if you want to host one of these. We'll come out and we'll throw a party for your friends and it's a lot of fun and we'll explain what we do. And it's simple. So Watar is produced by Andrew and Daniel Daniel, uh, by First Things Foundation for our listeners, for people who support and also for the world. They're trying to figure out how to talk about heavy things lightly. Nakwamdis, hasta luego. Peace to you, Andrew. Peace to you and your family. And I uh, hope to see you soon, man. Take care. Au revoir.